Join me in Philippians chapter 4 as we continue this series in Philippians nearing uh, the end of uh, the letter, nearing the end of our sermon series uh, series in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 4. I'm actually going to read verses 1 through 9 of Philippians 4. Let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard, received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, grow us, even change us by this, Your Word, more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Your children, you know, you watch the news and there's a shooter in Las Vegas and you sort of realize that could just as easily have been closer to home, and that's the world in which we're raising children. That's the world in which we're sending our children, uh, to which we're sending our children out. And then they, then they grow a little older, and they get this little plastic card that gives them the right to drive a, a half-ton mobile murder machine around town at 40, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, with a whole bunch of other people driving half-ton mobile murder machines at 40, 50, 60, 70, tons, 70 miles an hour. Only to then watch as they get a little older and you send them off to college and you have no idea what they're doing. Their school necessarily isn't, isn't, isn't necessarily safer. It's not necessarily better. We find knives and drugs and guns in schools all over the country, not just high schools, but middle schools and, and younger. Or maybe it's your job. Maybe it's not your children. Maybe it's your job. Maybe, maybe you're afraid that you're going to wake up tomorrow and not have said job. Maybe there's a, a risk of downsizing. You're, you're going to wake up tomorrow and you're going to go into work and you're going to find out we've, we've been downsized. We're, we're going to have to let some people go. Or, or maybe it's the job you don't have. Maybe you you wish you had a different job. There was something you 
thought you should have gotten, you applied for and you were convinced that you were the right candidate for it and you didn't get it. Or maybe it's not your job. Maybe it's your spouse's job. Maybe you, maybe he or she is going to wake up tomorrow and be a victim of downsizing. Maybe, maybe their job is more tied to the economy and when the economy goes bad, so does your paycheck. Maybe you have a boss that's difficult to work for or... Hours that are overly demanding. <clears throat> Speaking of the economy, there's always elections to worry about. You, which presidential candidate? Or should I write one in? Or is there a third party candidate I should choose? Or for that matter, which, which possibility, which option is better for the vacant Senate seat in our region? Which one of these people is going to Carry on my ideals the best, my hopes and dreams and desires. You can't talk about the government without recognizing there, there are dangers of war and threats of, of outsiders and, and ISIS and militant Islam. And does North Korea really have atomic weapons? And could they reach Athens? Could they reach where I live? Or could they get this far? watched that stuff on the news and followed right after that are hurricanes and, and tornadoes and all kinds of things going on. Meanwhile, your parents are getting older and they're demanding more and more of your time because they're in and out of the hospital. They're in and out of doctor's offices. They're, they're constantly demanding your attention. If anything social media has done, it's only made us that much more aware of all of these reasons to worry. If there's anything that Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and all those things, have, if there's anything social media has done, it's, it's only given us more and more news, real or not, doesn't matter. They give us that much more reason to be anxious. Maybe I didn't even... Maybe I didn't touch your list. Maybe I didn't think of your categories. The point is, we have a lot to be anxious about. We have a lot to worry about. That's probably why, at least as of a 2010 study, one in five Americans was taking some sort of medication for psychological or behavioral disorders. Now that includes everything. Schizophrenia, ADHD, antidepressants, it's all those things. They're all PTSD. They're all in that list. 21% of women 20 and older were taking antidepressants in 2010. And probably the scariest of all was that children 19 and younger, the number of children 19 and younger taking anti-anxiety medication had risen 45% in that decade. We have a lot to be nervous about. We have a lot to be anxious about. We have a lot to be afraid of. And it seems more and more the answer is to solve those with medication. And then, if you want to make matters worse, we know we're not supposed to be anxious. And so then we're anxious about our anxiety then we're worried because we're worried about things we know we shouldn't be worried about. If that doesn't heap 
more worry, more anxiety, more guilt on us. I don't know what does. Paul has for us in this passage a prescription for anxiety. Now, I have to say this. Do not hear me saying all medicine is bad. Do not hear me saying nobody needs medicine. Do not hear me saying that if you just had more faith, if you just trusted more, you'd never get sick, your kids would be perfect, your bank account would be huge, your house, everything would work, nothing would break down. That's not at all what I'm saying. And I think sin, the effects of sin, the fall has affected every area of mankind, mind, will, and emotions in such a way that sometimes medication is the right answer. I'm I'm not saying all medications are right. Don't hear me saying that. And yet, at the same time, in this passage, Paul is giving us a prescription for dealing with anxiety. Paul's first remedy, verse 4, is joy in the Lord. You and I... The word we use for happy is not the same biblical concept that we read in Scripture with regard to joy. Joy is a a different word. Joy in Scripture is different from the way you and I use the word happy. Our happiness is completely contingent on our circumstances. If our team wins, we're happy. If our team loses, we're sad. Now, we have a spectrum, right? I mean, obviously, if my child brings home all A's, I'm happier than if my team wins. If my child brings home all F's, I'm sadder than if my team loses. It works both ways. We have that that sort of spectrum. But when we use the word happy, or for that matter, sad, it's circumstantial. It comes and goes. It's based on, do I have bacon or have we run out? Am I eating chocolate or am I, I mean, it's, it's from the smallest thing to the great, but it's, it's a sliding scale. It's based totally on our circumstances. It's based totally on what's going on around us at that moment. That's not what scripture means when it talks about joy. You know, there are plenty of times when Scripture urges us to kind of get out of the woods and fly at about 30,000, 40,000 feet and get a bigger picture. There are times when Scripture urges us not to look at the right here, right now, this minute, but to take a longer term view and an eternal perspective if you will. And when we do, that's, that's joy. That's what Paul means when he says rejoice in the Lord. It means to take that, that longer term view of our lives, of our circumstances, of our situation, of what's going on around us. Are you familiar with the poem that I think is from Corrie ten Boom? Um, I've, I've always, in my head, it's always been hers. I, I don't know if that's actually true. It may, she may have used it. 
I have to say that for the recording. You know, I don't want to get accused of attributing something to somebody that's, that it's not. But the, the poem goes like this. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Now, I've never been a weaver. I've never stitched anything. I've never sewn anything. I've I've never done any of that stuff. I know enough that, that when you're weaving a tapestry of sorts, you look at one side and there's actually a picture there. There's actually something coming together. You can see, I don't know, a scenery, faces, people, uh, horses, I don't know, whatever you weave into a tapestry. But on one side, there's, a, there's an image. There's, a, there's a, a picture. There's something to actually see. There's something that, that even a neophyte like myself looks at it and goes, hey, I know what that is. That's a... But if you flip it over, it's a tangled mess of blobby yarn and string and knots and starts and stops and restarts and cuts. And it's, it's, it's just a blob. And they cross over each other. They're kind of in the way of each other. And, and it, looks like, it looks like somebody just took yarn and kind of vomited it all over the back of this thing. In this poem, Corey Ten Boom kind of says, the problem is, that's the part I see. The blobby, mangled, hey, I see there's a bunch of string there. I guess somebody's making something. But from my perspective, it looks like horror. How often do we lose the sight of the fact that God sees the the upper side, the tapestry side. We see the underside, the the back of the tapestry that's just a, a knot, a mess, a blob of string. Rejoice in the Lord. Joy, biblical, godly joy sees the end rather than the middle. It sees the destination rather than the miry swamp you have to walk through to get to it. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. In fact, he says it twice. So important is it. Rejoice in the Lord always. You know, it's one thing to come back a few minutes later and go, now let me remind you, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'm going to say it, rejoice. I mean, like the very next thing out of it, it's got to be a big deal. But notice, Paul isn't saying what you and I would say. See, our counsel our counsel goes more like this. You just need to quit being Eeyore and be more like Tigger. That's what you need. Bouncy, trouncy, flouncy, pouncy, fun, 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 fun. That's what, that's what you need. You just need to quit being Eeyore. It's a good day, I guess, if it is. You know, have a good nice day, if it is a nice day, which I doubt. That's Eeyore. Our advice, our counsel, well, you just need to quit that. You just need... Just suck it up. Things are going to get better. Cheer up. That's the kind of stuff we say to each other. Paul doesn't just simply say, get over it. He says, rejoice in the Lord. You know, I've used, I've used the illustration of Bobby McFerrin's song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. I've used it before. In fact, I think I even sermoned, used it for a sermon title in Luke. 
But that was so long ago, none of you would remember that. Have you ever listened to the song? It's the worst. I mean, the, 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 the verses are like, you haven't paid your rent, and you're probably going to get evicted, and your landlord is probably going to hire a lawyer. Don't worry, be happy. And you want to Grammy for that advice. Paul says, rejoice. It's not mindless, get over it, suck it up kind of stuff. It's rejoice in the Lord. You know, truth is, our worry, our anxiety says something about what we believe about God. Our anxiety says, I don't think God can, and I'm pretty sure He wouldn't. When we're anxious, when we're that worried about our circumstances, we're actually saying, we don't mean it this way, and we would never say those words, but we're essentially saying, I don't think God can, and I'm pretty sure He won't. I don't think God has the power to exercise authority and dominion over my circumstances. And even if he does, I bet he doesn't love me enough to do it. That, that's, what, that's what our anxiety says. It says, I've got to so hang on to, so control my circumstances. Because I'm, I'm not sure God is. And I'm not sure God will. And at this point, I have to point you to the table, right? The table proves he will. This table set in front of us proves He absolutely loves you and He very much will exercise His power and authority and wisdom over our circumstances. It's tough to be anxious about our circumstances if we're looking to Christ instead of our circumstances. Paul says rejoice, but not just not just get over it kind of rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. Turn your eyes towards Him. One, one remedy, one way to deal with our anxiety is to, to look to Him instead of ourselves. To look to Him instead of our circumstances. There's a second remedy for our anxiety in verse 5. So often we get to the ends of, of Paul's letters and it sounds like a mother who's sending her child off to camp and she has this minute. She has one minute to give last minute instructions. Those are always the important instructions. Children, you should listen to those instructions because if it's, if it's what she chooses to say in her last minute with you, it probably is a big deal to her. Write home, don't forget to call, change your underwear, brush your teeth, be nice to people, make new friends, write home, have a great time. I mean, it's, it's, that's how it comes out. And it, it Paul's, the ends of Paul's letters sound like that sometimes. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. They, they seem not to connect. But notice what Paul's doing here. As a remedy to our anxiety, he would first turn our eyes towards Christ. And then second, he would turn our eyes towards others. Your version, if you're using the NIV, by the way, you don't have the word reasonableness. Reasonableness, you have gentleness. I think because it's just easier to say. Now, the word is actually gentle. Most of the time in Scripture, the word is gentle. In fact, it's used in 
1 Timothy 3 in the requirements for elders. An elder is to be uh, not violent or quarrelsome, but gentle. It's the same word here. Let your reasonableness, I can't even say it, be known to everyone. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. You can't be reasonable if you're alone. You can't be gentle if you're by yourself. You have no opportunity. They, they flow outward. They, they need a recipient. They, they need someone else in the room so that you can have an opportunity to, to train your thoughts to be reasonable. They need someone else in the room so that you can be gentle. Who do you have to be gentle with if you're by yourself? They, they flow outward. They require other people. In other words, Paul first says, remedy number one for anxiety is look to God. Remedy number two is look to other people. Paul's touched on this theme a number of times already. Aristotle actually defined this word as a willingness to forgo one's own rights according to the letter of the law. Will you so hold on to the law that you will demand your rights from everyone around you? Or will you willingly give up your rights? Will you gladly, gently, reasonably let go of things you could demand if you wanted to, if you really held on to them, but for the sake of others, you'll let them go. For the good of those around you, uh, you won't insist on every right of the letter of the law. Paul says, consider others. He's already told us to consider others better than yourself. He's already said, have this mind which is yours in Christ, and then then went on to talk about humility and one Christ Himself who rather than demand His rights as the eternal Son of God was willing to set those rights aside to take on flesh and become man and suffer and die for our sins. I know what you're thinking. I, you know, I say that. I guess I don't know what you're thinking. I hope you're like me. Because sometimes what I do is I'll come to these commands and I'll look for loopholes. Well, maybe if I can limit this requirement at least to my fellow church members. Maybe if I can limit this requirement to fellow believers. Now, you see how that just, I just had to expand a little bit? My fellow church members, that number is smaller than the number of Christians I will interact with in any given week here in Athens. Of course, I should treat my fellow church members reasonably, gently. Of course, I should treat other believers this way. We look for loopholes. Paul closed the loophole. Let your reasonableness... See, I can't even say that word. Let your gentleness be known to the people you go to church with every Sunday. To the Christians in your town. That's not what he says. To everyone. Let your reasonableness treat everyone with the same gentleness, with the same deference. 
don't limit your, your gentleness to your brothers and sisters in Christ only, but let that character be known to everyone around you. Why? Why should we do that? Why should we treat each other that way? Well, the Lord is at hand. One reason is that Christ is going to return. One reason is that, that Christ is going to come back. We don't know when. We don't know how long we have to wait. From our perspective, it doesn't seem like soon. It seems like way too long already. From our perspective, we think He's taking entirely too long. From His, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. Time is immaterial to Him. We can be gentle to others as we wait and hope for Christ to return. And, and in showing that gentle, gentleness, we may just gather more people who are as, as excited about His return as we are. We may actually win more to Christ through that gentleness. Rather than demanding our rights, rather than, than, than holding our, our rights so tightly that we want everyone to, to bow down to us, we will set them aside for the good of others. How are we going to do this? Not just why should we, but how are we going to? Well, Paul tells us, the Lord is at hand. He may mean, not that Christ is coming back, but He may mean that Christ, by His Spirit, dwells in you. He's already alluded to this in chapter 2. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. How can we show our, our gentleness, our, our kindness to others? Well, Christ dwells in you by His Word and His Spirit. Let's face it. There's some, there's some mean people out there. I mean, there, there's some people out there who will mistreat you, who will drag your name through the mud, who will say bad things about you, who will say bad things about you to you, or they may say them about you to someone else. There are all kinds of people out there who will say things behind our backs, drag your name through the mud. How... how how am I going to do that? Well, the Lord is at hand. That's the way the psalmist uses that phrase. To mean the, the Lord is near to you. He's, he's imminent. He's, he lives in and with you by His Word and His Spirit. He too was gentle. Led like a lamb to the slaughter. He knows what it's like to have been mistreated. He knows what it's like to have been spat on. He knows what it's like to have people say bad things about him and to him and behind his back and to drag his name through the mud. He's endured all of that. Paul's using that phrase, the Lord is at hand. Just not sure whether he means his return is soon or his presence is close. But it's sort of like, you know, if you ask me the question, do you want bacon or sausage, you know the right answer, right? Yes. The answer is yes. Well, does Paul mean his return is soon, or does he, does he mean that his presence is close? Well, I think yes. I think he's intentionally 
nebulous in that phrase. I think he's intentionally, he intentionally doesn't define exactly what he means because both are true and both are necessary. I need both of those truths. Without Christ, you're never going to get anything remotely resembling gentleness from me. I need his presence in order to make that happen, in order to be gentle at all. Paul prescribes his remedy for anxiety. First, he urges us to look to Christ, and second, to look to others. You know, it's, it should be difficult for us if we turn our eyes upward and outward, it, it should be difficult for us to be anxious about our own needs. It should be difficult to worry about our own circumstances. It'd be hard to get worked up, I guess, over what's going on in our lives if we aren't staring at them all the time. If we aren't so consumed with them all the time, if we're consumed instead with, with Christ and with the needs of others. That, that's the heart of worry. The heart of worry is I doubt God's power and I doubt His love. And quite honestly, I presume that my life is worse than everyone else's. That my life is just more difficult than anyone else's. And so Paul gives a third remedy for anxiety in verse 6. Look to Christ, look to others, and finally pray thankfully, verse 6. You've, I've, I've said this before. This is going to be, I'm afraid that, that preachers may always have a phrase or two that you just get tired of hearing because they say them so much. One of these days I'll outgrow this one. But you've heard me say before, there are two things we do that prove we are neither sovereign nor all-wise nor whatever. Every time you sleep, you prove you're not in control. You admit that you're not in control of your life. Because you can actually put your head on that pillow and fall asleep and you are now no longer controlling anything in your world and when you do, you're admitting there's someone else in charge of my life, and it isn't me. And every time we pray, we admit our weakness. Every time we pray, we admit our dependence on God. What am I going to do with my anxiety? I, okay, I'm... I realize I've got all these things to be anxious about. I'm trying to look to Christ. I'm trying to look to others, but I'm still anxious. And quite honestly, I'm anxious about the fact that I'm anxious. I know I'm not supposed to be, so now I feel anxious and guilty about my anxiety. What am I going to do with all that? Where do I take that? What do I do with here, this big bucket of anxiety? What do I do with this? Paul says, take it to God. Go, go straight to the very throne room of heaven and dump it out at his feet. Pray. Pray thankfully. In everything, 
by prayer and supplication with thankfulness, thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You've been invited by God Himself into His presence to lay your requests, your cares, your hurts, your struggles, your pains, your worries, your needs, your joys, all of them at the feet of Jesus. Your children that you worry about because of the world they're growing up in, they belong to Him. The job that you're worried you're not going to have tomorrow, it belongs to Him. Your spouse was given to you by God. Take those things and lay them at the very throne of Christ. Notice notice just how all-inclusive this command is in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Like I said, I, I, maybe, I maybe missed your category. In, th- in that introduction, I, I mean, I touched on children and work and government and weather and foreign nations. I don't know what else we touched on. But maybe I missed your category. Whatever it is, no matter how broad the spectrum of the cause of your anxiety Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, pray thankfully. In everything, by prayer, make your requests be made known to God. Anything that makes you anxious, you take it to God. But quite honestly, I think the everything is bigger than the anything. In other words... If anything makes you anxious, take that to God. But in everything we should be praying. In every category, for every need, for every issue, for every thought, for everything in life. We should take that to God. Notice we're, we're commanded to pray, but we're commanded to pray thankfully. We're commanded to pray with thanksgiving. When someone holds the door for you, you say thank you. When someone gives you a gift, you say thank you. When someone does something nice for you, you say thank you. What reason do you have to thank God? Well, I mean, you could thank Him for His power over all of creation which means He has power and authority over your circumstances. All those things that make you anxious, God's sovereign over them. Thank Him for His sovereignty. He loves you enough to to send His Son to live and to suffer and to die for you and to rise again on the third day. Thank Him for the gift of His Son. the, The greatest gift ever given to man. Thank Him for the privilege of prayer. That's no small privilege. Think about when you pray, the, I know this is redundant, but I'm going to say it anyway, the created creature 
who has rebelled against the Creator, speaks to the holy, righteous, eternal Creator King. The the created creature in his rebellion and having received the gift of Christ can actually walk into the throne room of heaven with confidence. Prayer alone is worthy of our thanksgiving. The fact that we have the right to pray is worthy of being thankful. But we're also taking our our requests, our problems, our anxieties, our pains, our hurts, our struggles, we're taking them to the God who is all wise and all powerful. Peter tells us, cast your cares on Him for He cares for you. Worry says that I'm in charge and I'm not doing a very good job. Prayer says you take them because your wisdom is greater than mine. Your power is greater than mine. For that, we should be thankful. We're thankful for the gift of Christ. That He would give us His Son. And and the thought that we would say, okay, God, I, I know You've given me Jesus. But I just don't think you love me enough to take this anxiety away from me. If he's freely given you his son, how will he not freely give us all things? Paul asks that question in Romans 8. In many ways, anxiety is a doubt of that gift. Worry is a a doubt, a distrust of God's knowledge and power. So we wring our hands and we worry and anything is enough to push us over the edge. If we worry about one thing, we'll worry about a thousand things. They'll all end up in one big pile sooner or later. Prayer takes that pile and lays it at the feet of an all-knowing, all-loving, all-caring, perfectly wise God and King of the universe. That's when you find peace. Your remedy for anxiety, look to Christ, look to others, pray thankfully, and then the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds. Anxiety is not peace. Anxiety is inner turmoil to the nth degree. And add one more thing to worry about, add one more thing to be anxious about, and we're that much more in turmoil. Anxiety is the opposite of peace. Anxiety is frayed nerves and racing heartbeats and nail-biting and sleeplessness. Where will we find peace in the midst of our anxiety? Rejoice in the Lord. Consider others. Pray thankfully. And remember, as His Word promises and as this table shows, His love won't let you go. 
yeah, you may be in a storm, but you're going you're gonna to look up and you're going to see that rainbow and be reminded all over again of His promise to love and to care for you. And there is peace. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, we know that we hold too tightly to our own lives. We hold too tightly to our own circumstances. We far too often think we can just control them ourselves. We'd rather sort of stiff arm you, keep you at arm's length and say, wait, let me handle this because I'm really scared right now. Would you draw our eyes to you? Would you, would you turn our gaze to Christ? Would you cause us to see the, the needs of others? That we might think first of, of the good of others rather than demand our own rights and therefore love them and care for them and draw our attention away from our circumstances to theirs? Father, we pray that we would love deeply this privilege of prayer. Take seriously this privilege of prayer. Rejoice thankfully daily in prayer. Would you grant us your peace? Through Christ we ask it. Amen.